Psalm 111 that we'll be looking at together this morning is a wonderfully highly structured psalm. It's a psalm of praise that is in Hebrew written in the form of an acrostic. Now, that basically means that each line of the psalm begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It would be like starting each line sequentially from A to Z. And so, for 22 lines, the psalmist goes through the Hebrew alphabet, pouring on phrases, piling up superlatives about the greatness of the Lord, that our hearts might be stirred in worship and adoration of the living God. And so, let's keep that in mind in our reading of this psalm this morning. Before we read from the Word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer together. Our great God, we give you thanks for the beauty of your Word. We thank you for its clarity and for its truth. And we praise and adore you for its depth and for its riches. We thank you for how your Word continues to speak to us, offering us comfort in times of sorrow and discouragement, offering to us words of correction as we are prone to stray and wander, and offering to us encouragement that we need throughout this earthly life, filling us with hope and peace. And so may our hearts, O Lord, grow in wonder before the majesty and the splendor of your name. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright, in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The Word of our God. You may be seated. Now, before we get to the psalm itself, let's think for just a few moments here about how to approach a psalm like this. This psalm, as I mentioned, fits into that category of a psalm of praise. And so, what is the benefit? What is the use of a particular psalm like this? So, this is our first point this morning, the value of a psalm of praise, the value of such a psalm. And I think much of the Christian life is developing the important routine between worship, public worship, and then understanding how our worship ought to frame the rest of life. And we could think of the value of public worship as a type of recalibration. I used to have this little four-wheel drive truck that I destroyed the transmission of trying to pull another car out of the Florida sand. 
That's a story for another time. But when I first got this truck from my brother-in-law, I was excited to use the four-wheel drive feature. And there's not really much of a justifiable reason for that living in central Florida. But somewhere along the line of running over curbs or rocks or something like that just for fun, I knocked the front axle out of alignment and began seeing inappropriate wear on my front tires. And so, of course, I needed a realignment, a recalibration to set things right. Now, in a similar fashion, there are so many things in the world around that bombard mind and heart each week, knocking us out of that proper orientation for which we need the truth and the beauty of the Word of God to recalibrate, as it were, to set us right. And the way that realignment happens is through a regular encounter with the living God, having the gaze of our hearts fixed upon Him, focused upon Him, delighting ourselves in Him. As you probably know, I have great love for the Psalms. I see them as wonderful tools that are given to us from the Lord to shepherd His people through this earthly life. And the Psalms have wonderful benefit as they seek and minister and shepherd to the entire man. They inform the mind and direct the will and, and help reorient those affections. And so the Psalms inform and instruct, they educate our minds, helping to fill those minds with that which is true and right, as opposed to those things that are false that the world would seek to instill upon us. They correct us and redirect our wills that we might learn to live more and more for our great king instead of for self. And they inform our emotions. In that, the Psalms help to both rein in those wayward emotions, lest we be driven by them, and they help us to learn to submit those emotions to the lordship of our God. And so this is where the Psalms of praise like this one can be of help to us teaching us through meditation, through contemplative thought upon the Word, how to restore the mind and heart back to that Godward orientation. This is where that realignment comes into play. Old Testament professor Mark Futato, in describing the spiritual discipline of meditation, writes, to meditate on a text of Scripture is to think about that text. While meditating, our minds are active and engaged, considering, pondering, thinking about the meaning of God's Word for our day-to-day living. So as we think deeply and reflectively, as we turn the Word of God over and over in our minds, we are probing the Word for significance. We are asking questions about how it applies to our lives. We are considering how the Word can and ought to transform within In short, one of the goals of meditation should be an increased ability to live according to the Word of God. And this is where a psalm of praise like this one can be of help toward this particular end of learning to live for the Lord and not for the self, helping us to learn to love God more than we love ourselves, helping us to learn to think of Him and His purposes in life more than our own desires. And so there really is great power within the Psalms to bring gradual transformation into the lives of God's children. Now, this psalm can be broken into three sections, verses 1 and 10, 
that bracket really the heart of the psalm, verses 2 through 9. And so the first section of the psalm is here in verse 1 where the psalmist declares his intent, the whole intent of why he is composing this particular psalm. And so this is our second point this morning, the intent to praise the Lord. Now notice how this opening line in the psalm, praise the Lord, is both a proclamation of what the psalmist himself is doing, and it is an exhortation to tell us to come with him in praise of the Lord. In other words, the psalmist is declaring that it is his intent to offer thanksgiving and gratitude as he exalts the name of the Lord, while at the same time he is instructing us to come along with him as a great pastor and teacher, offering our praise together to our great God. Now, this phrase, praise the Lord, is, of course, a phrase that we probably associate with the Psalms, and it is a phrase that appears throughout the Psalter. As you probably know, the book of Psalms is broken up into five books, and there's an intentional structure to the way in which the book fits and ties together. It's interesting that we find this phrase, praise the Lord, only a handful of times in the first four four books of the Psalms. Well, we find it over 25 times in book five, the book where we find this psalm that we're looking at together this morning. And so what that teaches us is that the entire book of Psalms is moving the worshiper toward this particular end of exalting and praising the Lord. And so through all of the trials and hardships, discouragements, despondencies, all of the laments that we might experience in this life, or for the purpose of moving us toward this end, praising the name of the Lord. Now, the psalmist helps us to understand at least partially what it means to praise the Lord. There in verse 1, notice it. To praise Him is to give Him thanks. Now, he'll go on, as we'll see in verses 2 through 9, to reflect upon some particular areas of thanksgiving. But notice that the psalmist's desire is to give thanks to the Lord with his whole heart. Now, when the Bible talks about the heart, it does not have in mind that centralized organ within that keeps us going from day to day, granting to us physical life, nor does it have in mind simply the seat of the emotions, like we might say that we love someone with the whole heart. And while it's true that the heart involves the emotions, the heart, as it is used in Scripture, is much more complex than that. The heart is really the center of spiritual activity. When Scripture speaks about the heart, it's getting at the motives behind the things that we do, helping us to uncover the desires that drive all of our decisions, actions, and longings in life. Everything in the person flows from the heart. As the heart goes, so goes the man. This is why we read in Proverbs 4.23 that we are to guard the heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And so the psalmist, you see, with his entire self, with his entire being, his whole heart longs to give thanks and praise to the Lord. And you see, he wants there to be consistency between that inner and outer man. As he longs to give his whole heart to the Lord, he wants to identify areas of hypocrisy 
or coldness or half-heartedness. He has no interest in sitting with the congregation and simply going through the motions of external ritualistic obedience and worship, but rather in the congregation with the people of God, he desires to give himself wholeheartedly to the Lord. And really, we could end this morning with this because this is the summary of the highest calling that is before the believer in the Lord Jesus. And this is the reason why we as God's people come and gather in this place to give our worship and praise to God. Now, undoubtedly, you've experienced seasons of spiritual drought in your life. And while there might be all sorts of contributing factors why you go through those seasons of spiritual lethargy or coldness, at least in part, is the pride within your own heart that has kept you from meeting with God's people. And we begin to gradually drift from the teaching of the Word of the Lord. We stray from the eternal truths of God's Word, and there arises that coldness toward worshiping with other people. And we may come up with all sorts of plausible arguments that we feed ourselves as to why we are justified in staying away and remaining distant, when in reality, I have allowed my prideful heart to drift. I have become gradually more fixated upon myself and my own desires than I have the purposes of the Lord. And so we need to humble ourselves and acknowledge that we need this. We need the gathering together of God's people to worship the Lord. We need to take time to meditate upon eternal truths. We need to lift our hearts together in prayer in our voices collectively in songs of praise. We need the fellowship and encouragement that comes from meeting together week after week. And over the last couple of years, I've had the privilege to talk to so many of you who are new to our community or at least new to our church family here at Covenant. And when I have opportunity to ask you, well, what is it that brought you here? And what is it that brings you back week after week? I hear the same three things over and over again. First, it is that powerful little preacher. <laughs> Your words, not mine. It's the fellowship that you share together. It's the evident love that you have for Christ Jesus and the love that you have for each other. And it's the heartfelt singing of the congregation, singing that is evident of what resides in that inner man a love and devotion to God. You see, this is what the psalmist longs for, and this too should be what we long for, to give our hearts in worship to the Lord, in the assembly, in the congregation, knowing that even today we worship with an untold of number of faithful believers in Christ all over the world, and we even lift our voices in songs before that heavenly throne room where the saints who have preceded us into glory worship and adore the triune living God. Well, let's go on this morning and consider really the heart of the psalm in verses 2 through 9. And this is our third point this morning, reasons for praise, reasons to give thanks to the Lord and ascribe praise to His name. 
Now, one of the purposes, I think, as to why this psalm is structured as that acrostic, covering the whole of the Hebrew alphabet, is to help us see that everything, everything in all of life is about the living God. All of human existence, all of our human daily experiences are about the Lord. We are to live for the Lord, for He governs all things. We have wondrous purpose from the Lord, for He rules over all things. And so, by reflecting upon the greatness of who the Lord is, it serves to cultivate within each one of us an increased desire and longing for wisdom, which is where the psalm concludes, as we'll see more in verse 10 in a few moments. But since part of the practice of meditating upon Scripture is slow and contemplative thought. What the psalmist does is he takes plenty of time and gives multiple reasons why we should praise and thank the Lord. And the reasons that the psalmist gives for praising God are all grounded in the Lord Himself. It's about ascribing praise to the Lord for who He is and what He has done. Now, here's why that's important because there can be all sorts of conflicting, motivating reasons as to why we come into the Lord's presence and even come here to worship God. But if your reasons for coming, thanking Him, praising Him, are grounded in anything else other than Him, like your feelings, your pleasant circumstances, or your good relationships with others, then we're in trouble because all of those things will fluctuate terribly throughout this earthly life. But instead, a disposition of joy and thanksgiving and praise can be something that is sustainable in our lives because it is grounded in who the Lord is and what He has done for us. In a sermon on this particular psalm, Ligon Duncan points out that in worship, we must not confuse what is central with the byproducts. For example, if you seek peace you will not find peace. But if you seek Christ, you will find peace. If you seek joy, you will not find joy. But if you seek Christ Jesus, you will find joy in Him. You see, if we're merely after some byproduct, some personal benefit for ourselves, then we run the risk, the danger of missing the Lord Jesus entirely. And so, if we want consistency in our own lives between that inner and outer man, if we want to learn to drive out hypocrisy and half-heartedness from our lives, if we want to learn to identify those areas of coldness before they creep in and take root, causing further division between us and others or indifference toward the Lord, if we want our hearts to be truly engaged in worship of the living God, then we are to ground ourselves in Him not anything else in this world. And so, let's notice just some of the things that the psalmist reflects upon which stir his heart toward thanksgiving and praise. And so, everything that he reflects upon in these verses 2 through 9 fall into one of two main categories, who he is and what he has done, his person and his work. First, his person, who he is. What are among the things that the psalmist here reflects upon about the Lord's nature that feed thanksgiving and therefore nurture praise within his life? Well, verse 3, 
He is the righteous one, and His righteousness endures forever. There is no impurity with the Lord. There are no changing, shifting shadows, as it were, no hidden or deceptive motives, but He is true and right in all of His ways. Verse 4, He is gracious and He is merciful. This is a common refrain, a common way to refer to the nature of the Lord. You might remember when the Lord passes before Moses and He puts him in the cleft of the rock in Exodus chapter 34. As the Lord passes by Moses, He proclaims His nature to him. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so, in His grace and in His mercy, He has not treated us as our sins deserve, but has indeed removed them in Christ Jesus as far as the east is from the west, and has poured out His mercy upon our lives in abundant kindness. Verse 7, He is trustworthy in His precepts. All of His commands, all of His laws reveal something of His nature for us and are therefore good for us. Our God does not create laws with some ulterior motive to simply try to control His people, but all that He tells us is worthy of adoration and long for obedience in our own lives. Verse 9, holy and awesome is His name. All that God is, is absolute purity. As the Holy One, He is set apart from the wickedness of this world, and His name is awesome. It is to be revered and honored. We are to stand in awe before Him. And so you can see, filling the mind with such truths, surrounding the nature of God, should stir the heart to praise Him, to thank Him, to worship and adore Him. But it's not just who He is. The psalmist reflects upon what He has done. You may have noticed this refrain throughout the psalm, the works of the Lord. The works of the Lord are great. The works of the Lord are majestic. The works of the Lord are wondrous. They are powerful. They are faithful, and they are just. And so, what are among His works? When we think about the works of the Lord, we could think of past accomplishments that have present implications. And so, part of cultivating those hearts of thanksgiving and gratitude means that we reflect upon what the Lord has done, and we draw present implications for those things in our lives going forward. It's a part of God's works, we could say, entails creation itself. Verse 3, there is great splendor and majesty in the things that our God has made. He has established order. He has brought life into this world, and there is such beauty and goodness, and wonder to behold all around. And it can do our souls well to reflect upon things like the vastness of creation, or the splendor of the world around, or the beauty of what God has made. Perhaps some of you have seen these initial photos that were released about a month ago from the James Webb Space Telescope. I was looking at some of them this past week and was curious about how much of the night sky is captured in one of these images. And one scientist said that this image that you're looking at 
is the equivalent of one grain of sand held at arm's length, captured in the universe around. And as that image is blown up, it is filled with so many stars that we would never be able to count them all. And yet our Lord knows them all by name and holds them in the palm of His hand. You might think of the accessibility of our own, in our own time about sharing photos from creation itself, taking time to reflect upon the beauty, the majesty, and the splendor of what God has made. As we look at such things, we cannot help but think about God's power, His awesome knowledge, His kindness and tenderness, His goodness and benevolence. And dwelling upon His works of creation can fill the mind with wonder, can stir the heart toward devotion. But we also see His works not only in creation, but in terms of His providence, the way in which He cares for the things that He has made. We can think of His provision of food and water and quail in abundance for the children of Israel as they travel from the land of Egypt to the land of promise. This, I think, is alluded to in verse 5. And in our own lives, we could reflect upon all of the ways in which the Lord has worked individually to bring us to Himself, to sustain us in times of hardship and sorrow, to grant us life each day that we are truly undeserving. As a pastor, it can be a wonderful privilege to hear of how the Lord has worked in your lives, to hear individual stories about how the Lord protected you from foolishness, or at least from much worse foolishness than the things that you have done in your past. And even when your motives are not always right, you can look back and you can see how the Lord protected, how He directed, how He brought you to Himself and led you even here this morning. We can do our souls well to think about His works of providence in history and in our own lives. We also see His works and His redemption. Verses 5 and 6, He is true and faithful to His covenants. And His faithfulness to His covenant moves Him to show His power, bringing His people into the land of promise, to that inheritance that He pledged Himself to give to them. Verse 9, He has redeemed His children. He has released them from the bondage of their own sin. And by that sovereign work of grace, He has established a covenant that will endure forever. And we too ought to reflect upon the hope of our salvation, the tenderness of His mercy and grace, the way in which He will work His persevering grace in our lives, carrying us on to the very end. And so these are His works, creation, providence, redemption. And how should those works affect us? How should they, how can they stir within hearts of gratitude? thanksgiving and praise. Well, verse 2 tells us, great are the works of the Lord, studied or sought by all who delight in Him. And so, we could say that the manner in which we are to fill the mind and heart with gratitude, reflecting upon His works of creation, providence, and redemption, is to do so through a perpetual study, as it were, seeking Him with delight. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 12, as the Lord is instructing His people on how to live as they are brought into the land of promise, He tells them that they are to purge the land from false worship. They are to tear down those high places and those pillars that were used to offer worship to false gods and to burn the altars upon which sacrifices were made. And they are told they are not to worship the Lord in that manner. But Deuteronomy 12 verse 5 says that they are to seek the place the Lord chooses for that proper worship. And that word that's used there in Deuteronomy 12.5 is the same word that we find here in our psalm in verse 2, seek the Lord. Now, that does not mean that the Lord is going to hide Himself somewhere within the geographical boundaries of the land of promise. And like some epic quest, only the one who is most noble perseveres through hardship and trial, can find God wherever He might be hidden. No, not at all. Instead, the Lord reveals Himself clearly, and He tells us how we might approach Him and enter into His presence. And so, to seek Him does not mean that He is hidden and we must figure out how to find Him, but to seek Him simply means to return to that body of truth where He has revealed Himself to us, made Himself known, and to come back again and again, diving into that truth. And for us, of course, that means delving into the Scriptures, studying, dwelling, even returning again and again to those familiar passages of Scripture, for we will never exhaust even one portion of God's Word in this earthly life. Alec Moutier puts it like this, to seek Him is to delight in pondering His works. And we really are to seek Him our entire lives, because even on to eternity, this will continue to preoccupy us, reflecting, meditating, dwelling upon His wonderful works of creation, providence, and redemption. But not only are we to seek Him, but notice we are to delight ourselves in seeking Him, delight in meditating upon these wonderful works of God. He said we should delight ourselves in Him. We should desire with our hearts to worship and to long to know Him more. Uh, For some of you children, you might be here on a Sunday morning and saying to yourself, I don't really delight in being here. And even those of us who are adults, at times it may feel like a drudgery or a mere duty to pull ourselves out of bed to come here. But the psalmist is exhorting us to delight ourselves. We are not ruled by our our emotions, but we are in control of such things. And so it is a command to delight ourselves in Him, to feed mind and heart with joy. For in the Lord are pleasures forevermore. In Him alone do we find rest and salvation. The joy of our salvation is that Christ Jesus has died for lost sinners. He has purchased us with His shed blood. We are no longer our own but we have been bought with that shed blood, the one who died for us and was raised for us. As Calvin put it, we are not our own. Therefore, neither our reason nor our will should dominate our plans and actions. We are not our own. Therefore, let us not make the gratification of our flesh our end. We are not our own. Therefore, as much as possible, Let us forget ourselves and our own interests. Rather, we belong to God, 
Therefore, let us live and die to him. We belong to God. Therefore, let his wisdom and his will govern all our actions. We belong to God. Therefore, let us in every way in all our lives run to him as our only proper end. What I find most amazing and also convicting about a psalm like this is the level of trust and hope and thanksgiving and zeal for the Lord's honor and glory that the psalmist speaks about. The psalms, of course, are written hundreds of years before the incarnation of our Savior. As covenant people, they have been given the promises of what the Lord is going to do to save them from sin. But they have yet to see the fulfillment of such things in the work of Christ. They see in shadow form what we now see in greater substance. And so how much more should our hearts reflect the things that the psalmist speaks of? And that brings us to the final thing that we see in this psalm, which is verse 10. Look there again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And so notice how the psalmist concludes with wisdom. And this is our final point this morning, which is the need for biblical wisdom. And so the purpose for which we praise and thank the Lord is that we would be growing in wisdom in our own lives. And this refrain, of course, sounds very familiar. We see it throughout the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, the Scriptures tell us that man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. This is the inevitability for each one of us unless our Savior returns within our lifetime. We will die and stand before the living God. Now, to stand before the Lord of glory is truly an awesome and fearful thing. And to the one who remains under his wrath, there should be fear in the sense of great dread. But to the one who rests in Christ alone, we know that we will stand before the living God, cleansed within our consciences, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so that fear takes on a completely different meaning. The fear of the Lord is to revere Him. To fear the Lord in this manner is one of those byproducts of worship. As we know Him, as we learn of Him, as we grow in our love for Him, we cannot help but fear Him as we desire to walk in holiness of life. We might think of it simply as this. We fear things that are big. We fear that which has weight to it. Now, we might choose to give weight to the wrong things, and therefore we are driven by the wrong type of fear, by the fear of such things in this world. And so, for example, if it is the approval of others that looms large within our hearts, then we will cower when our beliefs or our convictions as believers in Christ are challenged. If our Christian faith is mocked or belittled, then we will capitulate to that which we fear. If it is the fear of loneliness 
or the fear of singleness that drives you in life, then you will tell yourself that your boyfriend or girlfriend's lack of commitment to Christ is something that can be addressed down the road. We fear that loneliness instead of fear of the Lord. Or perhaps if you fear losing your status and your vocational achievements that you have worked so hard to accomplish as your company begins to embrace compromising ethics or values, then you might find yourself compromising your integrity as well. Kevin DeYoung comments that when we fear God, that means the purposes and presence of God weigh upon us more than the world, the flesh, and the devil. To fear the Lord is to learn to live our lives in the presence of God, to learn to live our lives before the face of our Heavenly Father. Herman Bobbing writes, this is why we fear Him. He takes upon Himself our defense. He comes to our aid in all our temptations. He has pity for all our weaknesses. He purifies our consciences. He perfectly sanctifies and saves all of those who trust in Christ. He prepares a place for them in His Father's house where there are many mansions and where there is room for many and He preserves them for that heavenly inheritance. It is the fear of the Lord that drives out all other fears, and we have nothing else to fear. And so we may boldly go to that throne of grace. And so fear of the Lord is reverence that is joined with love and adoration and affection for Him that stirs our hearts to delight in Him and to bow before Him. To fear the Lord is to desire to walk in holiness of life, obedience to His law, moving us to worship Him at every point in life. And notice the last line of the psalm as we close. His praise endures forever. Our comfort is that His praise endures forever because He endures forever. And we, as His redeemed children, will live with Him forever. And we will praise Him. We praise Him both now and we will continue to do so on into eternity, never tiring of meditating upon the wonderful works of God. That will occupy us for all of eternity, stirring us toward unending joy. May the Lord our God be pleased to work such lasting joy and wonder in the hearts of His children.